Genesis 3.22, after Adam and Eve fell, there was a decree by God regarding their future. He drives them out of the garden and sets the cherubim and a flaming sword up to guard the way to the tree of life. Lest Adam, the Bible says, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God was not going to allow Adam to gain immortality by his own hand. It was going to be prohibited. And so uh, as I was preparing for this series, I found an excellent but really more obscure exegetical commentary on Ecclesiastes by a man named Dan Leo. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm not sure. He focuses on how the author, whom he also believes is Solomon, doesn't try to hide the futility that people face, but instead he emphasizes it. That's really what the book is about. He proposes that Ecclesiastes is really trying to tell us that the best thing a person can do in this world is to accept and enjoy life as God has given it. And he calls his commentary divine sabotage. That's where I got the title for this sermon tonight. This frustrating and futile life under the sun is God's design. We live in a world controlled by a sovereign God who has not permitted us to attain salvation or perfection or utopia by our own secular human efforts. Instead, the world has been designed to fail us. Rather than being cruel, I want to suggest tonight that this is ultimately God's gift to us. God himself has prevented humanity from being able to save itself, not so there would be no hope of salvation, but so that he would be our only Savior. Let me pray one more time. Father, I ask that you would watch over our hearts and minds as we listen tonight. Father, as I speak, be with me. Please overcome all that I am that would get in the way of this passage in your word, of the message you are proclaiming to us. I ask and pray for these things, for the belief of your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let me read verses 12 through 18 of Ecclesiastes 1. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In the opening, if you remember, of chapter 1, Solomon had made the point that everything on earth is absurd and futile, futile, however you want to say it. There's nothing new under the sun. Not in the sense that new things can't be invented or people can't have new experiences, of course, but that man never gains anything new. He never undoes what the world is by all his toil under the sun. No matter what new inventions or developments are made, we are still stuck here. We still die. 
After all this time, people are still asking the same questions about the meaning of life. And no matter what we're able to accomplish, we can't stop war, etc. We can't stop disease. We can't stop famine, all of these things. So when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he's referring to our situation and condition. The world never fundamentally changes. The first way he illustrated this premise was from creation in verses 3 through 11. But then beginning in verse 12, he shifts his attention to his personal experience. If you'll notice, he spoke in the third person in the prologue, those first 11 uh, 11 verses. But beginning at 112 and extending all the way really through 12.7, with the exception of 7.27 maybe, he shares his observations and his conclusions in the first person. Solomon tried everything to find meaning, pleasure, work, success, wealth, even worldly wisdom. And none of these things gave meaning to him. In fact, the more that he tried to get meaning from these things, the more he realized nothing that he did was ever going to deliver him from the reality of death. And so the gift of wisdom that God had provided him with provided him with the framework he needed to properly evaluate his existence. Ecclesiastes is the result of that. You see that in verse 13. The text makes us wrestle with the ugliness of the world before it gives us a solution. Remember that. That's intentional. Ecclesiastes is inductive, not deductive. It doesn't tell you up front what the solution is. He waits. He makes us wrestle with these things. And notice verse 13 is something a God-fearing man is saying but is also something a cynical atheist would say if he was going to talk about God. It's something a skeptic would say. And so something profound is happening here. We need, even as Christians, to be humbled. We need to become truly poor in spirit, right, in order to make sense of this world and our lives in it. Solomon speaks to us, first of all, as a king, a king. A ruler who has everything at his disposal to do this. So these observations don't come from someone who didn't have the ability to try everything. Someone who's bitter that they can't have more. They came from a man who had everything at his disposal. Solomon's life is the goal for most people. It's where you assume you would find meaning and enjoy your life and have gain. Uh, If anyone can have it all, it's the king. And yet it didn't deliver. The more he tried the less meaning he found. His conclusion is that God has given the children of man an unhappy business to be busy with. The business, of course, of trying to get gain from all the toil with which we toil under the sun back in verse 3. That's the business God has given to the children of man. Wisdom helps him discover that the meaninglessness of life under the sun is God's gift to mankind. He's given it to us. God actively keeps us from finding meaning or getting gain from all the toil he has cursed us to perform. Right? We're not going to find a backdoor way into meaning to salvation by working. God has designed our toil so that it brings us ultimately nothing. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Again, Genesis is the framework for Ecclesiastes. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will work your whole life, and in the end, no matter what you've gained or accomplished, you're just going to return to the dust. And there is nothing you can do to change that. That realization is what brings about verse 14. Look there again. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Everything. Everything. All of it. This is not a sinfully cynical man saying that. It's a divinely wise man saying that. Ecclesiastes is not the perspective of a man without God, beloved. He's admitting something that even Christians need to face about life in this world. The same things happen to the foolish and to the wise person. To the believer and to the unbeliever. To the faithful and the unfaithful. Both of them get cancer, right? And sometimes Christians get it and non-Christians don't. This is part of the world. This book is for every human being living in the world under the sun. And the person writing it is a person who's no longer pretending about what the world can possibly yield. That's the kind of person the world that we live in desperately needs to hear from. The book feels like pure despair, But that's not where it ends. That's not where it goes. Beloved, I want to propose to you that this is what humility sounds like. This is what it sounds like to be biblically humble. He's deconstructing our pride and our self-assurance in a very straightforward way. There's a reason this book feels offensive and and like it, it isn't doing anything for us. It's written to humble us. To deconstruct us, to make us face our pride and our self-assurance. It's just doing it in a way that hardly anyone normally does. Hardly anybody is this honest with us or talks to us like this. Right? You're going to die and nobody's going to remember you or what you did. Right? Most people don't talk to other people like that. And if you do, you're considered a burr in people's saddle. You're not accepted. People don't want to hear this. Beloved, I would say let the book speak to you on its own terms. Let it deconstruct you. Let it frustrate you. That's the beginning of the path to meaning and to gain. We all think we can change the world, right? That's the goal. Leave our mark. But we can't really change the world. It's a lofty idea. Makes for good movies, good drama, good stories. Nobody can do that. God will not allow it. Right? Again, not fundamentally is he going to allow the world to change. And we talk like this even as Christians. We're not, I'm going to change the world for Jesus. What does that mean? What are you going to do? Are you going to undo the fall? Are you going to undo the curse? Are you going to create heaven on earth? The moral majority, remember when that was the thing? How did we get here? If the moral majority had sway. In our country. How did we arrive where we are now? Moral majority didn't change the world. Right? Look where we are. People are leaving the church today in droves. In droves. 
I, I have a, I get a little magazine called Table Talk from Ligonier Ministries, and it was, uh, there's a, the, the, an issue from a couple months ago was doing a, like a poll amongst evangelicals of, of what they believe, and it was just stating the most basic core tenets of the faith. And 20, 30, 40% maybe on a revolving basis believed in the absolute truth of Scripture, the Trinity, things like this. Just that's interviewing people that are in churches, right? Did it ever matter? Did it ever matter that the conservatives at one point had the White House, the Senate, and the, and the House? Did that do anything? Did we reverse Roe v. Wade? No. No. Can't get reelected if you do stuff like that. So we're just not going to mess with that. We're not going to... No, beloved. Look, individual people in moments can be changed. Absolutely. But fundamentally, the world that we live in is not going to change. There are inconsolable things about life on the earth. There are things that cannot, will not be fixed until the Lord comes again. Jesus spoke like this. The poor you will always have with you. Really? We we can't ever figure out a way to eradicate poverty. You've heard that phrase. No. You can't eradicate poverty. To end poverty would mean what? It would mean turning Jesus into a liar. Think he's going to let that happen? So as admirable as some of those goals might be, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way, uh, to end poverty, right? To combat injustice, to eradicate suffering, etc. Again, God, in his absolute sovereignty, has not permitted those things to be attained through secular human effort. So to try that is really evidence of our rebellion, not of our goodness. Right. It's it's of course, that's counterintuitive, but the imperfections of life in this world cannot be remedied. That's not what Christianity is doing for us on the everyday level. We need to be humbled here or we're not going to listen to Solomon. And the world will continue to leave us bare. It will continue to take everything from us mercilessly. We must be. Humbled. How did Jesus talk? Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. You can't actually bear fruit in the world until you die. Right? Until you die spiritually, physically. I think he means spiritually there, but we have to see the log in our own eye. Beloved, we have to face some uncomfortable things. The belief we have about ourselves, our potential, our ability. There has to be a stripping away of our pretension about what we're able to do in this world before we can ever get on with real meaning. Again, this is why you have the conversations with younger men like I was once going into ministry. I want to change the world. I'm going to change the church in America. I want to do great things for God. And it never occurs that great things for God again might be helping with the dishes or changing a diaper or doing really well at your job. Those are not in the framework of great things for God. If you don't have 10,000 scalps to brag about that you've brought to Christ, you haven't really had any effect, right? And, and we evaluate people's value based on what they've accomplished, which is all that is, is a quest to find meaning, right? We, we want to be close to people that we think have succeeded, 
Right. But our terms for success are way different than God's terms for success. Again, we'll come back to this again and again. What was paradise? What was paradise? What was the world going to be like before we fell? You found somebody to love. You had lots of babies and you helped tend the garden. And that was it. And it was good. God said. We messed it up. Right. Again, God made man upright, but we sought after many schemes. And so you'll hear him, as he does here, talk about being crooked, right? And what is lacking cannot be counted. It's so messed up, you can't even count everything that's wrong with it. Right? Jesus invites us to gain our lives. How does he do that? Right? By losing them. That's not self-sacrifice. That's self-preservation. Did you hear him? What have we made that into? It's about sacrifice. No, it's about preservation. Don't lose your life. Gain it. Right? Do you hear him? Don't, don't lose your life. Don't live for this world. D- don't gain your life. I want you to gain your life. He says he wants you to live. But we've made it into sacrifice. Why? Because we can do that. So we think Jesus is inviting us to the triumph of the human spirit when he's saying, no, die to that. That's what he's talking about. When he talks about, if, if, if you don't deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. Well, if you try to make that a, a thing of quantitatively of the things you deny, how do you know you've done it? How do you know you're a good disciple? He's trying to tell you, stop trying to find meaning in your effort, even if it's for Christian things. Come to me, right? That's why it doesn't make sense to us when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't think of the Christian life as rest and relaxation, right? Of peace. Why? Because we've infected the word with our own desires to have meaning from doing. The abundant life Jesus promises is the life free from trying to find meaning and gain in the things of the world. It's freedom from the curse that made us want to do that and made us like that and cursed us to that. He invites us to gain, not to lose. He invites us to store up treasures where they won't rust. What is he saying? Don't lose your treasure. Why would you do that? Don't store it up where moth can corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. I want you to keep it. Lay it up in heaven. Moths don't corrupt there. Thieves don't break in and steal there. Nothing rusts there. Keep it. Keep it. Don't lose it. Jesus just teaches Ecclesiastes. That's, that, that, that's what he's doing. Look at verse, and, and other things, of course, but this is what he's doing. Look at verse 15. Listen to this. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. That's a verse about our limits as people. Right? But will we listen to this? Are we willing to hear this? Beloved, there's a crookedness to the world that cannot be made straight. No matter what, we cannot fix the world. We cannot unbend it. Do you see how that takes your eyes off of your neighbor? Right? Of, 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 our, of our obedience to that great command. Just because everything's so big, it, it just like loving the, the person next door is just surely greater things. No, no, no. That, that is the greater thing. Right, and acts that you live beside them for a reason. There's a reason that person is your neighbor. There's a reason the folks across the street are my neighbor. They hate my guts, man. I don't know what I did. 
I, I really don't. I just think they hate my guts. I've tried to say hi to the guy. Nothing. Nothing. So who knows? I, I, I don't know. But there's a reason I live there. There's a reason I live by those people. No matter what, we can't fix the world. We can't unbend it, right? Jesus never told us to try to do that, ever. Ever. It's been subjected to futility. Someone made it crooked. Someone bent it. Who? God did. And if that's the case, if that's the case, recognizing that, that Solomon is telling the truth here, and believing it, is a matter of faith in God, not cynicism, not pessimism. Right? This is biblical truth. The fall bent us. We await a Savior to unbend it. We cannot. So we live in an unfixable situation. Now, if you listen to people, what, what do you hear so much? Again, the triumph of the human spirit. Hear that in light of these things. The triumph of the human spirit. I, I, I'm not like other people, right? I will be remembered. I'm going to be remembered. I will change the world. We teach our kids to think like this. You can do anything you put your mind to, including be a good wife or a good husband, good mom or a good dad, a good employee, right? Just, just that too, kids, right? You're, you're not, you realize this is merciful. You're not bound to Accomplishing what the world considers great in order to have a fulfilling and meaningful life. We, we, in the church, we tend to talk like the world. We, we, great things for God, right? Great, great things, big things. Beloved, people grow up being taught and believing that your life is largely insignificant if you don't leave your mark, right? When God's word says no mark you can leave is going to change the world. So tend your lot. Be faithful to your spouse. You know how beautiful of a thing that is, beloved? Just being good to your spouse, loving them, caring for your kids if you have kids, or for your spouse if you're married. And now you realize, oh, I don't have to be married either to, to find meaning. No, you don't. Right? I mean, there's nothing, obviously, being married is a beautiful biblical thing. I'm not discounting it. I'm married, and I like it very much. But I'm saying it, it don't you're not going to find meaning from marriage. Right. You're not your soul's not going to be made whole from marriage. That's that's not what it's doing. It's not why God gave it to us. Be kind. Love your neighbors. It's not subpar. Right. It's, it's agreeing with God that we ought not take ourselves so seriously. For we are but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes whether or not we're a Christian. To be a vapor is to be human. right? To live in a crooked world where there's so much lack that it can't be counted is to live with respect to God above all other things because the world doesn't think that about itself. But God thinks that about the world. See, it's always a matter of what truth you will agree with. And call your own. Verses 16 and 17. He says, I said in my heart, right, verse 13, he's in a sense repeating verse 13. He wants us to know. He's not bragging here, right? I've said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart 
to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. That's the experience from which he's going to write this book to us. And so he, he simply returns to the themes of chapter 1 again and again. He's going to list out all the ways that he and we vainly try to toil for gain among persons and places that cannot provide it. Solomon tried everything, even madness and folly. Right? What, 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 well, maybe ignorance is bliss. It's not. It's not. And there's a reason that the Rockefellers of the world, was it Rockefeller when he was dying? How much do you want? And he said, just, just a little bit more. I think that was, it was Rockefeller or Carnegie, I think. Right? There's a reason that thousands of years later, the successful, the kings still talk like this. Millionaire athletes, Stars, they all, they all talk like this. It, it doesn't change. Nothing makes it new. Nothing unbends it. Nothing makes it straight. Christianity is not a way to make the world better. At least not in the sense of uncursing it. Right? You, you, you and I might be able to change by the power of God's grace. I mean, the life of somebody close to us, absolutely. They, they were headed this way. Now because of Christ, they're headed that way. Because God put us near them and we shared the gospel and loved them and were kind to them, absolutely. But nothing is going to unbend this world. It, it, Christianity isn't here to fix the world. Right? That, that, that's a fool's errand. God has not designed the world to be fixed. He broke it. Right? He cursed it. He subjected it to futility. If, if, if Christianity becomes about fixing the world, all we're going to do is fight with the weapons and warfare that the world does to do the same thing. And so instead of the gospel sounding like the gospel of grace, it sounds like another power play to run the world. That, that's part of the reason why people are rejecting it. And again, ultimately they reject it because they're dead in trespasses and sins. The cross is foolishness to them. I don't deny that at all. I'm saying we sometimes don't help. Okay? We, we make things more difficult than they need to be because we've muddied this gospel of grace and salvation with this, we're going to change the world. No, we're not going to change the world. We can't unbend the world. The Savior we proclaim will one day unbend the world, but until He does, it will remain bent. Bent. So don't fight to unbend the world. Fight to save people from being bent along with it. That's a whole different thing. It's not a way, Christianity is not a way to trick life under the sun. Christianity is the promise of escape, beloved. It's the promise of freedom, of deliverance, of rescue from this world. It's the revelation of the truth. And that's why the New Testament doesn't change the truth of Ecclesiastes. It's like as we read it, we're waiting for him to say, now, here's the gospel. He, he's not going to do that here. Right? He's not going to do that here. Right? Paul talks like Solomon is talking in verse 16 over in 1 Corinthians. What, what does he see? He's, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love helps things. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, if, if I have all wisdom and insight, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. How can that be true? You ever thought about that? How can that be true? If the world is bent. 
Right? What do you mean if I have wisdom? And do you think the person I save from a burning fire thinks that it's nothing? You think they care whether or not I love them when I did it? You see what Paul is saying? Paul, Paul's eyes are like the eyes of Christ. They're on eternity. Right? You, you're not trying to accomplish great things. You can do great things and without love it's nothing because love, the love of God is what saves the world. My efforts don't save anybody. My efforts don't change things fundamentally for people. I, listen, I know it's a compl- probably a completely different message than we're used to hearing. I'm not trying to be unique. I'm not trying to be cool or novel. I, I, I think this is what the Bible teaches. I really do. There's a reason you don't hear a lot of series on Ecclesiastes. What do you do with it? it it's like, oh, okay, right? There's a way to live then with a kind of wisdom that the only thing you're concerned about is loving people, according to Paul. That's beneficial wisdom for the world. And what would make you like that? What would make you say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna love the people in front of me by the grace of God? What would make you think that's enough in light of all the evil in the world and all the problems in the world? Because if the world can't be made straight and it's doomed and it's subjected to futility and it's cursed, what would be the best thing to do for people? Love them because it hurts. Right? Love people. They're in pain. They're in pain. And so are most of us. Right? Love your brothers and sisters too. Right? Ecclesiastes is not nihilism. It's true humility in light of the way God has designed the world. This is how we should talk. This is how we should think. It's to be so heavenly minded that you can actually be some earthly good. It's to say that the only thing that really matters at all is the gospel, I guess. Right? Might as well just be about the gospel and let the other stuff go. I think that's a life of meaning. It's not laziness. It's not apathy. It's faith in the truth of God's word. To say that that's it and nothing more. Verse 18. For. Here's why I perceive that that also is a striving after wind. For. In much wisdom is much vexation. That's only true if, if what can be known. Ultimately is painful not delightful. Right. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why? Because the world is so broken. And meaning is not going to be found in it. The more people realize that, the more vexation, the more sorrow, the wisdom and knowledge that Solomon gained by applying his heart to understand the world made him sad. Made it worse. Why is the wise person sad? Beloved, the Christian ought to feel this sadness. I don't mean you live moping and that's not what it means at all. It, it, after all, what makes us sad tells us what we love, doesn't it? I mean, what makes us sad tells us what we love, what we miss, what we wish for. He leaves us at the end of his introduction, 
with sadness. Notice that. He, he doesn't fix anything. He doesn't say it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with and then say, now let me explain myself. No, he, nope. He doesn't say, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. Yes, he did. He's, he's correct. But this is not despair. Okay? This is not despair that he's end in verse, that he's ending chapter one with. This is poverty of spirit. This is what the man broken by the truth sounds like. We have to stop thinking and acting like this ship can be saved. That something can undo it. That burden is not ours. Yes, realizing that will leave us with a sense of sadness, but it would be the sadness of the wise, would it not? Of those who have believed the word of Jesus. And think about this. If the wise are vexed and increase in sorrow, who was the wisest of all? It wasn't Solomon. Who was the wisest that ever lived? Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about him? That he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? He he was the wisest person that ever lived. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's why he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He saw it for what it was perfectly, better than anybody. Maybe that's also why he was always out alone in desolate places. Maybe that was a part of it. There's a heaviness of soul that comes with this. But it should, because that's the way things are. I, I think the enlightenment in American culture is really kind of what made us so, you know, sadness, heaviness is anathema. You gotta be happy. You gotta be up. Right? I, I, I don't think that comes from the Bible. If, if it does, then, then you, you, how do you explain the sinlessness of Jesus? How can you be that fulfilled and filled with sorrows and acquainted with grief. I, I think that's right. We're, we're not listening. I, I think we don't want that to be the case. Right. Sad again, sadness, heaviness of soul, melancholy. Those are normally considered deficiencies in people. And they certainly can be. And there's certainly a, a sinful, selfish way to be sad. Absolutely. Right. To be uh, bummed out. You know, probably that comes from. Things you thought were going to give you meaning that don't give you any meaning. So, so there's certainly a selfish way, an unhelpful way to be sad and heavy. And it, again, it, it, I don't think it has anything to do with your face necessarily. There's a beautiful picture of our Lord in John 11.33. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. At the grave of Lazarus, when Jesus was, the text says, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Mean, he, he was indignant. He wasn't just sad, right? He, he Sorrow for the loss of a friend, indignant at death. And I think that's where Jesus lived. I think that's why he would grieve in his spirit. He, he wasn't, you know, moping. He's not Eeyore. Everybody know who? Okay, all right. See, somebody's, I just set off somebody's phone. If you heard that back there, I guess I'm the only one that heard it, but... That was our Savior, right? Sorrow at the loss of a friend. Sorrow 
indignant at death. Where did he live? What was he doing? Right? Why didn't Jesus branch out? Right? Why just stay right there? Well, prophecy, of course, but I mean, really? 0 BC, roughly to 33 AD, that's, that's when you come, that, that's, why, why not come now? Why not come when the information superhighway works? And, I mean, again, why, why does God tend to move in such obscurity? The widow at Zarephath and Elijah, what a story. Or we don't even know her name. How do you not know the name of a woman whose son was raised from the dead? How do you not know his name? Right? It's, it's just, it's... Jesus in John 11 is the vexation of verse 18. Right? He knows things. He knows things. So he's not just sad. He's vexed. He's indignant. And in a, in a righteous way, not in a, an angry, sinful way. But it's, it's not empty despair or cynicism would be the point here. It's the apprehension of reality as it is. I think that, that's where the believer needs to live. I think, I think that is potent. Right? When people start to realize you, you don't have this thing that you think makes you smarter than everybody else. Right? That, that, that you don't, you can't even relate to reality because you're just on cloud nine all the time. And again, you, you, we don't have to be monolithic and everybody have the same sad, bummed out personality. That's not what the text is saying. The text is trying to tell us that to apprehend, to, to comprehend reality is to have a sense of sadness and heaviness because of the way things actually are. It's, it, Christianity would not be to deny that, but to embrace it. Right? God did not stop the unhappy business of paradise lost. Let your mind linger on that. God didn't stop that. Zach Eswine says that this part of God's story tells us that God will not bring salvation by giving us escape and immunity from the now cursed world. That is not salvation. Solomon is not a quick, close the deal evangelist, right? You want to pray the prayer? It's not even... What he's doing, and I know, of course, it's the Old Covenant and it's different, but you understand my point. He's, he's not fixing it right away. He's not trying to close the deal. Solomon is not saying things cannot be fixed. Solomon is saying we can't fix them. And we have to humble ourselves to acknowledge this, and we can't. So we're going to need grace to do what the text is telling us. After all, what's, we talk about, why would I say humbling ourselves is the, what is the spirit of the age? Right? Utopia, perfection, cleansing away of evil. It, it, it's only going to lead to suffering. It's only going to lead to suffering. That's that futility. That's that round and round cycle where to do good, you have to do harm. Right? That's what a broken world looks like. Right? To bring peace, you gotta kill certain people. You know? That, that's the way it is. That's why I, I don't disagree with that. I, I, that idea. I mean, in a world like this, some people can't be allowed to live, right? It's just, it's too dangerous to everybody else. If we look to the things of the world to give us something new, we're never going to be satisfied. Ever. All that toil will not get us that. It will only get us pain. 
That's the result of all our labor under the sun. Verse 18. Do you see that? that? That's the result. We may think God has been unkind to sabotage us like this. But let's take a step back and realize something here. This is His mercy, beloved. He has not left salvation in our hands. He has not required us to fix the world. That would have been unkind to do. After subjecting us to futility and making our world crooked, to then turn around and say, now fix it. Save yourselves. Good luck. No, beloved, he knows that we are dust. So he doesn't make dust, try to find meaning in dust. And I think to be saved is also to find meaning, which is wrapped up in Jesus, not in ourselves. He's the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. We've never been the big deal, ever. God himself has prevented humanity from being able to save itself. Not so there would be no hope for salvation, but so that he might be our only savior. God has purchased the path to freedom. He's given us the way beyond the sun. If there's no escape from under the sun, then rescue is going to have to come from somewhere else. That's what it is to know Jesus. That's what it is to know Him. There's a big part of being saved that is really seeing the world the way that it is, which is a gift of God's mercy. That's part of what He gives us in raising us from the dead spiritually. Right? He takes the scales off our eyes. He meant to set us free from thinking this world or ourselves can deliver us. He came to set us free from that toil to find meaning, beloved. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Right? You hear Paul saying that in Philippians and reading about gain in Ecclesiastes, you begin to see it in a different light. To live is Christ. Not me. Christ. To die in this world is gain. Right? Not to live here. Living is Christ. Dying is gain. Dying is gain. Do we hear that statement in light of Ecclesiastes? Gain does not exist here. Stop trying to find it. Right? Stop trying to find it. After all, I mean, what are the implications for loving people when you no longer need them to give you something? Right? Why do you think Jesus loved so well? He wasn't magic. Because he was trying to die. Not gain. The man didn't even buy a house. It's not a sin to buy a house. You know what I'm saying. Right? Had nowhere to lay his head. Why? Well, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Right? Your father knows that you need these things. We talked about that through the Psalms. Ecclesiastes invites us to be poor in spirit. Is that not what it means from God's perspective to be blessed? Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
blessed to be poor in spirit. Not unfortunate, not needing a pick-me-up are those who mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Why would you be mourning here if you could see it for what it was? And the only way you can see it for what it is, is to be saved. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're blessed to mourn because that means you see the world like Jesus did. Which means you're alive. And it means one day you're going to be free. Live in the reality that God has left the fallen world unfixed. And you and I are not on the hook to fix it. He will undo it. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Sorrow and frustration with the way things are here is what it means to live like Jesus. And notice Jesus' sorrow and frustration did not get taken out on suffering people. If it came out, it came out on self-righteous people. Don't be like that. We have nothing to brag about, beloved. Nothing. Tending your lot, loving one another, believing in Him, that's the path to meaning. That's the path, that, that, that's paradise. God is going, Jesus is going to bring heaven down to earth. Right? So, so eternity is God showing us what it was going to be like before we ruined it. Okay, beloved, this, He'll fix what He has made crooked, but He will. You and I are here for a little while. The best thing we can do is going to be right in front of us. Right? Right in front of us. The world is broken, but take heart, believer. Your Jesus has overcome the crooked and bent world. Let's pray. And we'll sing. Father, I thank you for the truth that you pour out on us in this book that reveals your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. Lord, help us think clearly as your people. Help us see the world for what it is and love people because of that. Soften our hearts. Help us believe the truth. And watch over the souls of your people, we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.